Did you notice the uh, transition there from warm greetings to, yikes, what was that passage? <laughs> right, it got, the, the warmness got, just left and we just got like a judgment passage. Where did that come from? Didn't see that coming. Hey, this morning I, I have to admit ahead of time that I'm going to feel a little bit out of balance here as, as I preach. It's not because of my health or anything, it's because Pat is sitting on this side of the room right now. It's going <laughs> to throw things off a little bit. Okay, okay, okay. Melinda Quivick, who's a uh, liturgical uh, and homiletical scholar, uh, she, she writes this about the Advent season. She says, Advent is a time of deep thinking about ultimate things. It's a time of deep thinking about ultimate things. And that's, that's an impressive statement by itself. Kind of encourages and invites us to a place of, of kind of deep, uh, deep thinking, literally. Uh, with that and, and invites us to maybe even a, a greater way of using the season itself. So my question, of course, when I read something like that is, why do I then feel so ho-hum during the season? Why do I feel as though it's not as deep and that I'm not probing the ultimate things of life? Of course, ho-hum, wordsmiths tell us that this is an expression of boredom, indifference, or resignation. Uh, that ho-hum describes something boring, Right? The word itself, uh, earliest uh, use of it dates back to the 1920s sometime, is what they think. And the word is, is kind of built around this, literally, what a yawn would sound like if you created a word out of it, is what they think is how it was developed. And ho-hum, of course, captures the mundane of modern life for us. And that's not any different here for us here in pandemic. Uh, we live in a season of life when we're back, but not really. And so there's a whole hum quality to that. Whole hum can also describe faith lives, describe our spirituality and the way that we uh, approach our life in the Christian life. Uh, for a nation here in this text that's returned back from exile, uh, you have this group here, they're wondering where God is. Uh, perhaps God might come back like the days of old. Uh, maybe a little nostalgia is setting in here in hopes that God is going to intervene in their lives. But their faith lives have become whole hum. Uh, it describes them quite well at that point. Of course, when it ha that happens, and to borrow from Eugene Peterson, an observation he makes here, God is crowded to the margins of our lives, and we become preoccupied with ourselves. And that's the season we oftentimes find ourselves in, not only in the Advent season, but throughout the year. Of course, what does that look like on the ground? What does it look like to become absorbed in and of yourself when you move to that place? Well, here's a couple things. You might expect there to be decreased faithfulness. There might be less of a connection there. There's a lack of generosity starts to show up in one's life. And there is, of course, a neglect for our neighbors, even trampling them underfoot in some ways. And each one of these, even though this is just a small list, each one of these shows up in Malachi's prophecy, that this is where the nation finds himself. And by the time we arrive at this text, though, they are asking a fresh question at this point. But Malachi has drawn their attention to their failings. Two chapters of failings, failings of priest and nation, worship and covenant. And now their question, their fresh question, you might say, is a question to the God of justice. Where is that God? Where is God even about justice? Maybe God's forgotten who God's supposed to be. Sure, we read in Isaiah chapter 5 about those who exchange good for evil, calling literally evil good, but has God done the same 
And here's what Malachi does in our text. Offers to each one of us here in this Advent season a godsend. We know what that is, right? We know what a godsend is. It's that seeming unexpected help at a critical moment in our life. You ever had a godsend moment? You got some of godsend? I remember when I was early, I don't know if I've shared this story before, but early in our marriage, Andrew and I had a, a very large medical bill that we could not pay. And we were inside a, a, a prayer meeting with a group of folks representing a lot of different generations there in the church. And I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> I was just going to go, I think we should pray that we would be faithful, <laughs> right? I wasn't going to say any specifics. But I finally said, you know, there's, there is something that's stressing us out. We got this really big bill. And the folks gathered there said, you know what, let's, let's pray about that. And they prayed. And later that week, a check came in the mail from one of the people in that group. A significant check that covered the entire bill and then some. And they said, we don't want that burden to be on you anymore. I was just a lowly youth director. They had no reason. They didn't have any kids in the youth group or anything like that. But that was a real godsend. And we know what those godsends look like. They come in the forms of invitations and, and special checks like that. They come in the form of smiles and conversations. And when they do, there's, there's a, a powerful reframing of our life experience at that moment. There's a moment where you could literally say that our faith is restored in that godsend moment. And the prophet here is going to offer a godsend. And watch what I do here. <laughs> He's going to do it by offering them a godsend messenger. And say that's going to be a place to reform the faith, to transform them. And it's curious that Malachi here in verse 1 was going to talk about this messenger. Say this, my messenger. Because Malachi's name itself means my messenger. And so perhaps here he has in mind that another prophet like himself is going to show up in that, in that moment. Is going to operate within that, that function. And maybe not just one person, but a whole string of folks that kind of speak in this way that this is a pattern that God operates in. Of course, the text doesn't really say. Doesn't tell us who the messenger is going to be. Doesn't let us in even into uh, what's going to happen uh, when, they, when they show up. It kind of is in these broad strokes for us. So it's left rather ambiguous for us. Of course, if you turn to chapter 4, you'll see Elijah mentioned. And some have thought that it's this Elijah figure that's going to be uh, this person who comes. But what we do see here is an advanced team. There's an advanced team that's going to show up. And that advanced team, that messenger, is going to operate in a way that God has operated throughout the ages. God is going to lead with grace. And we see that leading with grace here in a couple ways. We know that in, in verse 1, the one who is to come, the one that's coming after the messenger, is going to come suddenly. You ever been shocked or scared by someone? I was walking upstairs this weekend to wake up Rory. <laughs> I'm walking up the stairs. I'm going upstairs to check on her. She's hiding behind a wall. Early in the morning, the lights are off. And she jumps out at me. <laughs> I'm at the top of the stairs. <laughs> ah! <laughs> Whoa, what are you doing? Of course, you're trying to look calm, cool, and collected, right? I'm not scared. <laughs> right, my watch is like showing the beats of my heart really fast. But there's a sense of a suddenness that's going to come with that one who's going to come. They're going to come suddenly. They'll be in the temple suddenly. And this messenger helps prepare the audience for such a surprising occasion. The second thing that we see here is the arrival day is of such overwhelming and terrifying significance. That day of the Lord, that, that day when God will arrive. You think about, you know, a long time ago we had around warfare, they talk about shock and awe. This is real shock and awe. 
right? This is a terrifying moment when history becomes, what? There really is God. And God shows up in, in, in that moment. It's so terrifying. Even the prophet you hear in the text pauses at this moment and says, who can stand? Who can endure? And the messenger here provides a kind of buffer in advance of that day. A series of preparation for what's coming. Now, it wasn't a terrifying day, at least uh, not in the normal sense of the word, but when I was in elementary school, we had a VIP coming to our school. He was going to show up, and he was going to lead us in all kinds of songs. I don't know if you know this person, but do you know local music icon Jim Valley? Does anybody know him? Of Paul Revere and the Raiders fame? Do you know Paul Revere and the Raiders? If you don't, it's okay. <laughs> so he was going to come. Apparently he had recorded an album of children's songs, and he was going to come to our elementary school. I didn't know who Jim Valley was, and after he came, I still don't know who Jim Valley is. <laughs> but he was coming, and the school was all astir. We're getting ready for his, his appearance. And they actually taught us all kinds of songs. We had to memorize all the songs off the, off the cassette tape. And we learned them, and we sang them, and then we were going to gather as a large student body, and we were all going to sing these songs with Jim Valley. We heard his voice on the tape, and now we get a chance to sing with him. In fact, if you go to YouTube today, you can find a documentary of Jim Valley. And if you watch closely, you'll see a young Jimmy <laughs> singing amidst his classmates. I've shared that with many of people. We spent weeks preparing for his arrival. And when he arrived, he came with big cameras, and the campus was electric because of his arrival. That's preparation. The one Malachi sees coming is infinitely greater, infinitely grander in scale. And we know this because the person who's coming, the one who is coming is identified as me in the text. Never did two letters mean so much in a scripture text. The me is coming. And if you know the books of prophecy, the one who's talking, the Lord says, and so we know this me is coming. Not only that, Described as the Lord they seek is the one who's coming. And even more, this messenger of the covenant. Now, there is some disagreement about who they, exactly that last one is. But make no mistake, the me and the Lord that they seek are very clear. They've been asking, where is God? Where is God in all of this? Where's that God of justice? And the prophet answers, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. And that is a hopeful thing. And that's a hope-filled occasion. But it's also, as we've noted, terrifying. It's a terrifying moment. So we do well here to ask questions about what does it look like to prepare for such a moment. If Russell Wilson could help us at this moment, he might let us know the separations and the preparation. You remember that? Didn't really work on the football field that much this season, did it? So how do we prepare? Well, we need to look back, not back before Malachi, but back before our own day and age. We go back to the first century, uh, you'll, you'll, those of you who are familiar with the Jesus story, uh, this, is, this is not going to come as any surprise to you, uh, and you probably have in mind uh, what that season is all about when you think about even this own text from Malachi. Of course, for those who may not be familiar with the Jesus story, you've never heard the gospel story uh, before, you come in here and you say, no, I don't, I don't know if I know the story very well. Maybe you've seen a Charlie Brown's Christmas. Have you seen that? It's going to be playing, I understand, on like the 17th or 19th or something on PBS. 
You'll recall that Charlie Brown was given the task of finding a Christmas tree in that story, only to return with something far less than what anybody had hoped for or imagined. He comes back with just this meager, dying-looking sapling of a tree. His peers, of course, ridicule him, and they viciously laugh at him. A chorus joined by his dog, Snoopy. You know it's bad when your dog is mocking you. Reduced to believing the jeers of the crowd, you remember what Charlie Brown says at that moment? He concedes here, I guess I don't really know what Christmas is all about. He goes on with exasperated voice, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And of course, standing close to him at that moment is his good friend Linus, clutching his blanket securely, and then steps forward to offer that he knows what it's about. And what does he do? What does Linus say? He goes on to recite Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, this kind of abbreviated version of the Christmas story. Shepherds, angels, peace on earth. That's what Linus speaks to. That's what Christmas is all about. Of course, Linus isn't alone in all this. I imagine that a great deal of us, if we were asked, what is Christmas all about, we might say something similar. We might, of course, add additional details to the story, Uh, Maybe even we would direct people to go and look at Luke chapter 2. I think it's important for us this morning to recognize here in Advent that early Jesus follower like Luke doesn't begin there. That's not where Luke's gospel begins. That's Luke chapter 2. It's not even chapter 1. In fact, if you're talking about the origin story of Jesus, Luke's going to start at a different place, a different point in the story. The name Jesus is not even going to show up until the end of chapter 1. His birth, of course, is not until chapter 2. So where does Luke launch his narrative? What does he see as being a significant figure, a prefigure to to Jesus' ministry? Well, it's this figure that shows up in Luke chapter 1, as well as within the other gospel writers. And that figure is associated with the words of Isaiah. There are words from Isaiah chapter 40, which speak of one whose voice is crying out in the wilderness and preparing the way of the Lord. That's right from Isaiah 40, right from the beginning there. And that shows up in each of the Gospels as a reference to this particular figure. But in Mark's Gospel, something else happens. Something a little bit different gets added to the Isaiah piece. It begins with that same character, but here the Isaiah text is joined with these words. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem like that references something we've already heard? this morning there clearly here is a nod to malachi 3 and if you dig into it it's also a nod to exodus chapter 22 and with that nod john is cast this john the baptist figure is cast in the role of messenger and you might be wondering this morning why is that significant to us why would we care about this story from the gospels why would we care about that here in advent After all, our text is from an Old Testament Jewish prophet. Why are we then jumping ahead to John the Baptist? Well, it might be helpful to know this. If the early Christians understood John's role as a messenger in advance of the coming of the Lord, we might pull from that, we might glean a couple things, at least, that would help us understand how we might prepare based on the responses of the people in John's own day. Think about John and his baptism. He preached a baptism of repentance. He has people coming out into the wilderness and they're being baptized. There's transformation, there's cleansing, there's change that's happening in that. 
And lots of figures are showing up here at this, at this moment to see him. And we see in Luke's gospel, particularly in Luke chapter 3, that the different groups who show up ask questions. They ask, okay, great, we've been baptized, but what should we really be doing? Like, how then should we live now as a result of what's happening in this coming in the wilderness? And look what, what John says to them. When folks come and ask that practical question, like practical expressions for life, what does he tell them? He says to them in Luke chapter 3, verse 11, you who have stuff, right, you have your possessions, you should share those with those who do not. What? I just came out here to get wet. I came out to hear a good message. Why do you, you got to tear me down like that? Now you got to tell me to be generous and share? What's that all about, John? Who do you think you are? First message to them is a message of generosity and sharing. All right, that sounds a little bit like Malachi's prophecy. He goes on to tax collectors. You know those despised bunch, that group in the first century that nobody likes, not even their own countrymen because they're ripping them off in a lot of ways. He says to them in Luke chapter 3, verse 13, as they come and ask the same question, what should we do? They're to keep their demands just. They're supposed to limit themselves to just what is appropriate, what they're supposed to receive, not asking for extra, not ripping people off. Again, there's another strike there. We see practical application. How do you prepare yourself for that coming day? He tells them to act justly. Well, that sounds like Malachi, doesn't it? Okay, how about soldiers, right? Soldiers show up. Now, when soldiers show up, you can easily be intimidated, right? These are, these are strong people who know how to kill somebody. So if you talk out of turn, you might be in trouble. Of course, they show up to John, and John says to them, I want to encourage you to be content with what you receive, the rations that you receive. I want you to avoid extortion and violence as you carry out your duties. That's Luke chapter 3, verse 14. What is he asking the soldiers to do? The same thing he's asking everyone to do. The same thing that he's telling the tax collectors to do. He's saying you need to act justly. You need to live not for injustice, not for your own personal gain, but you need to see the others. You need to care for them. You need to love your neighbor. You need to exhibit these types of qualities. Preparation here looks like persons who are being called to reform their way of doing business, the way that they live their lives, the way we live our lives, the way that we do life. It's supposed to look different. That's what preparation looks like. And that's where the separation comes. And it means more than just a way of living. It means every season, every place, how we engage with others, how we think about others, how we plan to engage with the lives of others. All those places transform in every sector of our life. So let me ask here, in the season of preparation, are you growing in your capacity to be more generous? Are you growing in your capacity to act more justly? Is that where we find ourselves in this season? We hang up tinsel and lights, put the tree up, we plan out what's going to be purchased off the Santa list, what's going to be given as gifts, what type of gatherings we might have for food and all the whatnot. But really, this is a time for preparation. It's a time for you and me to be transformed and experience transformation. And who doesn't like a powerful transformation story? I remember when I was a teenager, uh, we went to a Sonics game. So that tells you it was a little while ago. 
Went to the Sonics game, and they were having a special presentation afterwards, and they had a guy up there giving his testimony. You ever hear someone give their personal testimony, stand up and give it to a crowd? They had a guy get up there, and he gave his testimony. He told us how when he was a young child, his family was involved in drugs. And so he got all caught up in that, and his, and his life was wild, and his parents, uh, adults in the household changed left and right, uh, so much so that his life became kind of down a, a, a path that he didn't want to go down. And he ended up with him, by the time he was like 18, he was involved in a shooting, and it taken a man's life. And he got done recounting all these stories of, of being you know, arrested and, and kicked out of school and all these different places. And he said, I could tell you how terrible my life was, but none of that's true. I was like, what? <laughs> Just spent 10 minutes of my life listening to this guy talk about how terrible his life was, and none of it was true. We love powerful transformation stories even when they are told to us, and the person who's telling us them is not telling us the truth. We get hooked by them. We find ourselves listening to them and, and kind of hopeful that we too might experience that. But here's the thing. Transformation stories don't always start big. They're not always questions of deliverance from living a life of crime to suddenly living a different kind of life. They don't always start big that way. But here's the thing. They always start somewhere. Transformation stories always start at some place. And we know that God wants something different for us than we oftentimes imagine for ourselves. And even something more than we can achieve under our own power alone. We know that because our text this morning notes that on the day God is to come, it's not going to be a day that God just shows up. In fact, God comes with a very real plan to set the world right. That God is going to come to the temple. That's God's presence restored amongst God's people once more in all the land. That God's going to come and enforce covenant blessings. And we see this, this giving of the blessings, but we also know there's also reckoning when it comes to the curses themselves. And there will be a transforming, and this is the transformation, of persons. That God continues to be about that work of changing our lives, changing us as people, making us something more than we can imagine. And in that transformation, there's going to be a cleansing and a removing of impurities that we see in the text. We see metaphors for refining fire and soap. We think about jewelry and clothing, what those things would affect and how the people who come out the other end of that are gleaming or shining because of God's amazing work in their lives. And reading just beyond our text, of course, we hear in verse 5, this time of judgment and restoration of justice. I may have settled for a ho-hum life, but God hasn't. Not for me and not for you. God wants something more for us. And the Lord is coming. The Lord is once more pursuing us even while we're a long way off even as we find ourselves hiding. And when God finds us, God transforms us, transforms our lives, and transforms our worship. We pray that God would give us a glimpse of this in the days ahead, that we might see more than a glimpse of this in our own lifetime, that we too might be strengthened to be faithful and live justly in our generation and all generations for earth. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Friends, let us pray together.